Good evening. I think all of us have heard the expression, that's a tough act to follow. That's a tough act to follow. Thank you, ladies. That was beautiful and I'm sure glorifying to the Lord. So to Troy's point, it's the, the, the fourth night, the final night. So this is the night where we got to resist the urge to maybe snooze a little bit. Uh, during this time, I do believe the Lord has something for us because his word is going to be open, right? And uh, so the Lord's going to show up and he's going to speak. He's already showed up. The worship's been outstanding. And, and so the word certainly won't disappoint. Let me just say thank you to so many of you. I've had the privilege of just talking with you after the service, whether it be just here or in the barn or in the hallway. And it has just refreshed my heart to just hear uh, just your testimony of how God has met with you this week and different things that you're gleaning personally in your life and how that is moving the needle on worship in your life. Man, praise the Lord. You know, as a, as a, as a teacher, you know, whenever you, you teach the Word of God, you really have two things that are really pressing on your heart. First and foremost is you want the Lord to be pleased, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's the ultimate why. And then you just want to see people edified. And so having those conversations just... Uh, just let me know that, the, that God is at work, which doesn't surprise me because he's faithful that way, right? But it's just been so encouraging just to talk to a number of you and uh, just hear what God is doing in your life this week. So let's keep that going tonight. We'll be back in Second Chronicles chapter 5. I'm going to pray, and then we're just going to dive in. Lord, uh, you know <laughs> very, very well uh, that I am and imperfect vessel, but Lord, I do recognize and I do uh, rest and I'm thankful in a perfect word and a perfect and powerful spirit that more than compensates for where I lack. And so, Lord, with that, you're able to get glory out of this and you're able to speak and work in the lives of people. And I simply ask that you would do that tonight for your glory alone in Jesus' name, amen. So here in Second Chronicles chapter 5, verse 10, we read that there was nothing in the ark save the two tables which Moses put therein at Horeb. When the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt. So the verbiage of that speaks very clearly to the fact that at one point in time, there was something in the ark more than the Ten Commandments or the two tablets of stone. And those items, as we know, were a golden pot of manna and Aaron's rod that budded. But in the temple, the only things that were in the ark, as we read here, were the two tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments. Now, this is very, very important because this is going to set us up for this first major focus that we're going to examine tonight. But the pot of manna and Aaron's rod were associated with and connected to Israel's rebellion in the wilderness. That's very critical. Consider Numbers chapter 17 and verse 10. And the Lord said unto Moses, bring Aaron's rod again before the testimony to be kept for a token against the rebels. And thou shalt quite take away their murmurings from me that they die not. So this follows, of course, the rebellion that we read in number 16 that was instigated by Korah. So Aaron's rod served as a reminder of Aaron's priesthood authority that was given to him by God himself and a warning to Israel against murmuring. We saw this last night, just how much God despises this. As we know, during the millennial reign of Christ, he is going to rule with a rod of iron. And during that time, there will be zero tolerance for rebellious nonsense, none whatsoever. But now that Israel is no longer a wandering people and the ark has a permanent home in the temple, the only item in the ark were the Ten Commandments. And the reason for that is stated very clearly in verse 10. The Bible says, when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel. Listen, the Ten Commandments provided a framework for God's people to worship him properly and remain in right relationship with him. They did. 
Listen, I, I, I can't stress this enough. God has no interest, no desire whatsoever to war with you. Did you know that? God does not want to war with you. He doesn't want to fight with you. That's not God's heart whatsoever, any more than you as a parent, right? As a parent, like the last thing I want to do is war with my children. No, thank you. <laughs> I don't want to war and fight with them continually. And neither does God with us. God's heart was not to have a relationship with his people that included rebellion. God says, just do away with that. I'm going to give you everything you need to worship me and stay in right relationship. Can we just do that? Here it is. You honor that, and we're going to be good. And that hasn't changed. God loved them, delivered them, and faithfully provided for them. And the response should have been, we love you, we worship you, and we will be faithful to you and you alone. That was the covenant relationship that God had in mind. It's the one that he has in mind. And not having the manna and the rod in the ark reinforced that. But this brings us to consider what I believe is so very critical. And I do believe if we have a blind spot in worship, we're going to encounter it right here. And that is the submission in worship. We've considered the theme of worship, which we said is sacrifice, but I'm very thankful for how God has used Troy to enlighten me on this aspect of worship that is so very critical when we talk about submission or, as Troy puts it, surrender. And the submission aspect of this is seen in Genesis 22, where we realize that it becomes clear to Isaac at some point, oh, wait a minute, I'm the sacrifice. So there is a submission or surrender aspect clearly involved there. And here's what we all must process. Starting with me, a living sacrifice is a submitted sacrifice. A living sacrifice is a submitted sacrifice. If we are in rebellion to God at best, the only thing we can do with Romans 12.1 is know it. <laughs> That's the best we can do with it. If we're in rebellion to God, we can, we'll have an intellectual relationship with Romans 12.1, and that will be it. Nothing else. Now, if you are to be a dedicated house of worship, you got to get this, and so do I. Listen, true worshipers are not at war with God. No. Why is that? Because true, wor true worshipers only seek to what? To worship him. They are not at war with God. They are not a rebellious people. In the lives of true worshipers, God's rod of discipline is the exception to the rule in their life. They are not stubborn. They're not going against God. They're not fighting. Uh, they're, they're not quenching and grieving the spirit as a way of life. No, they're submitted. They're surrendered. Now, we can, quick, we can quickly dismiss this and go, of course, I mean, me be at war with God? I, no way. That sounds, that sounds rough. I mean, no, never. I know there are some people, but, but surely not, not, not me. I, I would never be at war with God. I'm afraid I have to say not so fast. Because if Aaron's rod served as a reminder of his priesthood authority, which had been challenged strongly by the people through murmuring, and that rod at one point was placed in the ark in the most holy place, guess what that tells us? It tells us something that is so critical in this conversation about worship and submission, our submission in it. Listen. Our worship of God is strongly tied to our submission to spiritual authority. It is, this is why I say this is a blind spot for some. Our worship of God is strongly tied to our submission to spiritual authority. One of the things that God has been faithful to show me and teach me 
And I'll just share it with you because I think this is something that we all got to process. But from God's vantage point, we got to understand there can be no spiritual progress without submission to spiritual authority. The moment you rebel against the spiritual authority in your life, at that moment, you put the brakes on worship and you put the brakes on moving forward. It stops right there. It absolutely does. If true worship must be done in spirit and in truth, the truth is this. Rebellion against those who are over us in the Lord only positions us to try and offer God worship that he will not receive. He won't. Please hear this. Obedience to truth is one of the strongest expressions of worship. It is. Obedience to truth. Sometimes that's inconvenient. Sometimes that's very difficult. Sometimes that's illogical. Sometimes it doesn't feel good. But nothing says worship to God like obedience to his word. Would you agree that true worshipers love God? Would you agree? Sure. A true worshiper is absolutely going to love God with everything in them. And what is the ultimate proof of that? Jesus makes it very clear in John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. You know, um, Troy is from Missouri. Our church is in Missouri. That's the show me state, right? Show me. You know what shows God that we love him? What shows God that we really want to worship him? Obedience. It's not talk. It's not good intentions. It's obedience. Nothing says, I love you, God. Nothing says, I'm worshiping you, God, like obeying his word. Listen, for many of us, if we were as concerned about how God views our rebellion as we are passionate about our opinions, the very thought of murmuring and rebelling against those who are over us in the Lord would be nauseating at best. It would. If I can, let me give you two verses. Let me give you two verses that are very near and dear to the heart of a true worshiper. It's found in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 and 13. Paul said this, And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, and be at peace among yourselves as long as you agree with every decision they make. As long as you agree with everything they do. As long as you're happy with them. As long as you like them. Is that what it says? No. Let me tell you, let me give you two obvious realities of true worshipers in the structure of the local church. There are two things that we can extract from what we see here in verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 that are going to be true of true, true worshipers. Sorry. Number one is this. True worshipers, please, please, they are going to hold their pastors in very high regard. They're going to esteem them very highly in love. They're going to hold them in very high regard. They are. They're not going to slander them. They're not going to undermine them. They're not going to be difficult. They're going to hold them in very high regard. Number two, they would rather die before they would war with their pastors. They'd rather die. No way. No way. Listen, if you are at war with those who are over you in the Lord, be not mistaken. 
you are not a true worshiper of God because you are actually at war with him. If you are warring with those who are over you in the Lord, you are warring with the Lord. We got to get that. Our worship of God is tied strongly to our submission to spiritual authority. This is no light thing with God. It is not. We continue in verse 11. And it came to pass when the priests were come out of the holy place, for all the priests that were present were sanctified and did not then wait by course. Also the Levites, which were the singers, all of them of Asaph, of Haman, of Jonathan, with their sons and their brethren being arrayed in white linen, having cymbals and psalteries and harps, stood at the east end of the altar, and with them an hundred and twenty priests sounding with trumpets. Can you imagine the scene? Man, this was a worship service, y'all. Did I just say y'all? I usually don't say y'all. Did I hear you say y'all, Troy? You said it this week at one point, bro. I thought I heard you say it. I'm like, I don't remember you saying that back in Kansas City. What's happened to you? So, but this was a worship service, y'all. It was, man. It was something. And there's enough here for us to actually exhaust all week just in what we have here. But there are some key words and phrases that really set us up for this next focus and they are so very, very critical. Now we're talking about the prerequisite for worship. In other words, this is what we have to have in order for us to worship God in spirit and in truth anywhere. And listen, <laughs> if God doesn't have your ear by now, he's got to get it now. Verse 11 says, the priests were come out of the holy place. Uh, this was the place where the golden candlestick was, which pictured Jesus, the light of the world. We see that in John 8, verse 12. The table of showbread was also there, which represented fellowship with God through his word. And the altar of incense, which represented fellowship with God through prayer. They're coming out of this place, but this wasn't just any place. This place was holy. Only priests and Levites could enter, anyone who wasn't. It was basically a death sentence. Verse 11 is a parenthetical statement, which means we're getting clarification on what's been previously stated. So we see here, for all the priests that were present were sanctified. Not only was the place where they were ministering holy, but they themselves had to be holy. To step into the ministry of the tabernacle or the temple as a priest, unclean was once again a death sentence. God was very clear to Aaron, you tell them they better wash their hands, they better wash their feet, and if they don't, they're going to die. Verse 12 tells us that they were arrayed in white linen. And of course, white represents purity, it represents holiness. This phrase, white linen, only appears twice in Scripture. We see it once here, and we see it again in Revelation 15, 6, regarding the seven angels who will, who will appear with the seven plagues. And they will be clothed, it says, in pure and white linen. But they, too, are God's ministers. Ultimately, here's where we're going. The prerequisite for worship is holiness. This is what God has to have in us to receive worship. He's got to have it. And listen, this is a major emphasis. Holiness, this is a major emphasis when we talk about the preparation for worship. Holiness is a major emphasis. Because listen, nothing will quench worship in your life to God like sin. And so as you prepare to worship God, one of the biggest things you're doing is you're dealing with sin in your life. Whatever the Holy Spirit of God has revealed to you that is inconsistent with the person and nature of Christ, you deal with that. You have to. One of the things that true worshipers do not do is they do not try to make a spiritual living by quenching the Spirit all the time. 
The Holy Spirit of God is faithful to reveal to you and bring to your remembrance the word of God. Especially when your life begins to go away or stray from the things that bring God glory. And the Holy Spirit would have you to get that right and keep it right. Why? So that it doesn't interfere or disrupt the flow of your worship to God. It's critical. Listen, I understand and I have great respect for our discipline in rightly dividing the word of truth. I do. I, like you, I teach that all of God's word is written for us, but not directly to us in this dispensation. I would say amen to that every time, all the time. However, I am afraid that what we have done through that, unintentionally, we've done some really bad math. And that math implies that as dispensations have changed, so has God. And let me tell you what comes out of that. What comes out of that is a reckless conclusion that says that somehow in the dispensation of grace, God doesn't hate sin as much. It doesn't bother him as much. Yeah, God hated pride and arrogance and murmuring and idolatry and lust and all of those things. He really hated that in the Old Testament. But he doesn't hate it as much because we're in the dispensation of grace. That is very bad math. I would even say it's dangerous math. And it's actually a lie from the lowest part of hell. Please, when it comes to possessing an immense hatred for sin, the God of the New Testament is the same as the God of the Old Testament. That did not change. That has not changed. There is no discrepancy whatsoever in hatred. Listen, God has a holy, zealous disdain for sin at this very moment. Obviously, Romans 12.1 is a familiar verse to us. We looked at it on Sunday as we needed to. But we must be very mindful of the very first word that follows the command to present our bodies as living sacrifices. What is that word? Holy. Holy. It's not that God just wants a living sacrifice. God says, it's got to be holy. It must be holy. Why is that? Because, listen, if there is something that God wants you to know about him and never forget, God would have you to know that his chief trait, his chief attribute is holiness. God is holy, 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 we know this is the only attribute of God in Scripture that is given a threefold emphasis like that. God does not give any ground there whatsoever. God cannot dismiss himself. He cannot step away from the essence of who he is, and that is he is holy, holy, holy. And when we recklessly conclude that God somehow doesn't hate sin as much, and then we come to his word and we actually see what the Bible actually says about holiness. Here's another reckless conclusion that people, that believers actually arrive at. And this is reckless. And it's grievous to the spirit of God. You ready? <laughs> holiness is unreasonable. It's unreasonable. I mean, this is where people, they, they come face to face with what the Bible presents about holiness and go, well, man, who, who can live that? That's crazy. So since God is okay with sin in this dispensation and since no one can really be holy, well then, hey, man, we can just sin that grace may abound, right? And to that, the apostle Paul said what? 
God forbid. Please, a dedicated house of worship is a holy house of worship. It is. It must be. Over the years, I've observed many believers dedicate their lives. And I'm sorry, I've heard and observed believers rededicate their lives over and over and over and over again. They'll sit in the service, the Holy Spirit of God deals with them, and they come to the altar, or maybe from where they're sitting, and they rededicate their lives. They sit through a conference like this, and God deals with them, and they rededicate their lives again. And then they'll do it again, and do it again, and do it again. Ultimately, the reason for the need to keep rededicating is because once the emotion of that wears off, they return to the same vomit and vile that leads to the need to keep rededicating. I want to share a very, at least it is for me, a very sober principle that God has reinforced to me as it relates to holiness. It's simple, but it's enormous. And there's no way around it. Listen, holiness hurts. Holiness hurts. Would you consider these verses, these statements? Jesus says, let him deny himself. You know what that means? I, 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 I've got to tell me no. Although I, I've got the urge and I've got this tidal wave of temptation and I've got this circumstance that screams, hey, here's a time where it's okay for you to step away from God's word. I mean, this circumstance, this situation, I mean, come on. I mean, does, can God really expect you to follow his word in this situation? Here's why you can be excused from the book. I'll never forget, my wife and I, it's been years ago, our children were toddlers, and we were in a parenting seminar. And, I mean, we were in the thick of it. I mean, we were in the twos and the threes, the, the tantrums, and, I mean, our house was World War III. I mean, praise our kids are doing okay now, but, it, I mean, at that time, it was, I was like, I don't know if they're going to make it. I don't know if I'm going to make it. <laughs> and I'll never forget, um, one of the instructors, he said this, he said, do not withhold the word no to your children. Say it without apology, without explanation, no. And I'm like, okay, I need to hear more. Because <laughs> I don't know what happens when I say no. <laughs> it, things blow up. <laughs> but here's what he said. He said they must learn to process that word because it is the hardest word they will ever tell themselves. Is that not true for us? One of the hardest words for you to say to you is what? No. And that hurts, doesn't it? Romans or Colossians 3, 5, mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. Galatians 5, 24, and they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. Listen, I'm not referring to asceticism that you know, promotes or advocates some extreme legalistic self-denial. Not, not talking about that. But what I am talking about is there is an aspect of holiness that can be painful initially. There is. Where you've got to, uh, in, in, in principle, you've got to pluck out an eye. You, you, you've got to cut off a hand. That can hurt initially, Right? There can be that type of call to obedience. Why? Because to do that, I get to worship God. <laughs> and God is worth that. But holiness, it can hurt. 
If holiness is the prerequisite for worship and the theme of worship is sacrifice, then listen, being a dedicated house of worship will be as costly as the materials that went into building that glorious temple that Solomon built. Worship is not cheap and neither is holiness. I wish it was. Verse 11, for all the priests that were present were sanctified and did not then wait by course. So we know David had implemented a structure for the priest to serve in a rotation, if you would, and that is what is, that's what's meant by the statement by course. So they were divided into sections, but on this day, they were all together. Priests and Levites. In verse 12, we see that they were positioned at the east end of the altar. And again, you can't walk through this and just not see Christ saturated everywhere. Because once again, Christ, as the focus of worship, is amplified, believing that they could dispel the prophecy of Christ entering Jerusalem through the east gate. We know the Muslims had it sealed and shut in. But according to the book of Ezekiel, that's exactly where he's going to come back, right? That's exactly where he's coming in to Jerusalem, right? So they're going to be disproved. But look at verse 13. And it came even to pass as the trumpeters and singers were as one. To make one sound, we're as one. And to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music, and praise the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. That then the house was filled with a cloud, even the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of God. Now we're talking about the unity of worship. And oh my, is this critical. This was a worship service, but we do have to make a critical observation here. Would you notice that Israel's unity in worship began at the leadership level? That's where it started, and that's so critical. The trumpeters, the priests, and the singers, the Levites, led the nation in praising and thanking the Lord. They were one and made one sound. Now listen. Uh, to reinforce how critical this was and how critical it is. Would you notice, in the Old Testament, Israel went astray when their leaders went astray. And that's true. Ministry leadership, we are either leading people in worship or we're leading them away from it. Consider Isaiah 9, 16. For the leaders of this people cause them to err, and they that are led of them are destroyed. Once again, worship gets compromised at the leadership level, and once it gets compromised there, make no mistake about it, eventually it will contaminate the flock. It will. And you know that worship has been compromised at that level when it's no longer one unified sound of worship. Other sounds have entered in. And these are not sounds of praise and thanksgiving. They're not. They're a different sound. These are sounds um, of my opinion. Uh, These are sounds of, well, this is my agenda. Uh, These are sounds that express my disagreement. It's no longer about one sound that uh, praises God and and, and expresses thanksgiving to him. There's a different sound now. And and, and I've been in ministry leadership long enough to know now that working with a team of pastors is extremely similar to having a healthy marriage. It requires the same traits. It does. In order for me to have a marriage that glorifies God and edifies my wife, you know what I have to do? 
I have to die to myself, don't I? I have to die to my pride. I have to die to my selfishness. I have to die to my arrogance. I have to die to my impatience. I have to die to my expectations. Listen, unity is not cheap. In order to achieve and maintain unity, everybody has to give something up. Nobody gets to get their way every time, all the time. I was told years ago, and I couldn't agree more, there's only one person in the world who sees everything the way that you do. And guess who that is? You. <laughs> so you know what you're going to do? You're going to lose your mind if you think that you got to get everybody on your page. That's crazy. And so what happens is, or what needs to happen is, is you know what, it doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what I want. As a true worshiper, my chief focus is I'm only preoccupied with what is it that pleases God? Then I want to promote that. Not my way, not my will. It is interesting that one of the instruments listed here in verse 13 are symbols. And that's interesting because of what we encounter in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and have not charity. I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. A tinkling cymbal is essentially a loud clanging noise. Not a pleasant one to the ears. Listen, when praise and thanksgiving are replaced with schism and division, what God hears is a loud clanging noise that is very displeasing. God says, I hate that. What does the Bible say? How good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Let me tell you, God did something for me that I'm so thankful. I, and again, I, I get it. Pastors in situations like this can say things like this and go, okay, I hear you, you're saying that because you have to and you're in front of people, so you got to look the part. I mean every word of this. Um, I really did marry out of my league. My wife must have been in a bad season. Um, she must have, she must have just been, I don't know, just whatever it was, I'm glad. Okay? Um, but, and we came from two different worlds. I grew up in a broken home. Um, I grew up in a home that was just littered with hostility and profanity and darkness and sin and all of that. It was. She grew up in a godly home. And you know, one of the things that I, didn't, I hadn't learned when I got married, I, did, I hadn't learned that, you know, you could actually have a disagreement without becoming disagreeable. Really? I didn't know that. I was probably even teaching that at that time. It just wasn't real in my heart. And, and my wife, praise the Lord, she is a woman with a meek and quiet spirit. She takes the position that a soft answer turns away wrath. Grievous words stir up anger. And her heart to me was, you know what, I, I just, I will not go there with you. I will not disagree with you like that. I'm not going to raise my voice. I'm not going to be angry. I'm not going to be aggressive. I'm not going to be combative. I won't do that. If you want to have a discussion, we can have a discussion. And I'm like, no, I want you to fight with me. <laughs> so, man, I'm trying to press every button to provoke her to let's get it on. And she just, nope. And God used her to teach me that when it comes to a disagreement, there are two things that are very important. Number one, that I glorify God in the disagreement and how I handle it. And number two, that it's more important for me to win her and be right with her than it is for me to be right. If I get my way, if I'm right, but I have not won her heart, and we're not together, then I haven't won, have I? 
Listen, that's the same approach that it takes to work with a team of pastors. Bro, it is more important for me to be right with you and for us to be right than it is for me to be right. If I win but didn't win you in the process, I lost. Right? You know what? That sounds good to God. That's not a clanging noise. Listen, churches that are unified in worship are cultures of praise and thanksgiving. Listen, this is where you want to go to church. You show me a church where they're unified in worship. They have a praise and thanksgiving culture. The believers there are not devouring each other. Right? You you walk in and you go, man, it's just good to be here. I love it. From the leadership to the greeters. Everybody is full of praise and thanksgiving. And guess what their testimony is? For he is good and his mercy endureth forever. They believe that. They speak that. They live that. And they share that. This is the power of worship next. Verse 13, that then the house was filled with a cloud, even the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord had filled the house of God. God showed up, guys. Now, verse 6 in particular is both impressive and interesting and deeply clarifying. It's impressive when we look at the amount of sheep and oxen, and oxen, okay, it's the fourth night, I can't talk, apologize, hang with me, these words will come. So my daughter is probably watching right now. Let me tell you, she's a sweet girl, but as her father has turned 50, and I'm tripping over words and not pronouncing things well, no mercy from this one. (laughs) So I guarantee you, I'm probably going to get a text that says auction. Okay? (laughs) Welcome to the 50s. But the amount of sheep and oxen were so many that they couldn't be numbered. But here's why it's so interesting, and here's why it is so very clarifying. Would you notice the abundance of sacrifices did not fill the house with the glory of the Lord? Is that not interesting? Very interesting. What filled the house with the glory of the Lord, listen, was the unity of worship by the people. When there was unity of worship, when they were agreed, when they were together over the praise and worship of God, that's when God filled the house. How about that? And God filling the temple with his glory was evidence of the fact that he was pleased. God put his stamp of approval on this. God says, I like that. God says, that's worship. We don't get this when we are at war. We don't get this when we're divided and and there's schism. We, we, We don't get this. But once again, Christ as the focus is once again on display at his transfiguration A bright cloud overshadowed Peter, James, and John. And guess what? They were overcome. (laughs) His face was shining and the, the raiment of his clothes were bright and they couldn't handle it just like these priests couldn't. Listen, God always, please, you got to get this, God always responds in a powerful way when we unify and worship. I'm serious, you stay unified in worship, but I'm telling you, God will do things in this church that will blow your mind and mine. 
God's presence, presence was not just in the temple and symbol now. No, he showed up in a way that overwhelmed them. Listen, when we unify and worship, guess what? We win. And we win. Well, we win big. Sometimes our worship gatherings are as mechanical as a machine, aren't they? The machine's running. The machine's doing everything it needs to do, except the machine is dead, isn't it? There's no life in it. It's just running. Right? We got, we got the order of service. Okay, we're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're going to sing this. We're going to sing that. We're going to preach this, preach that. I mean, we're, 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 we're gathering faithfully. We're serving. We're tithing. We're attending meetings. We're putting on conferences. We're doing all those things. Just kind of rinse and repeat, right? But we're not getting Second Chronicles 5, 13 and 14. We're not experiencing that. Why? Because of a very costly era. For many, worship is something they do. But being a true worshiper is not who they are. Just like a machine. I'm supposed to do this at this time. So you press this button and you're supposed to get this result, right? Now, when a church is comprised of people like that, it is impossible for them to unify and worship. They can't. My time is wrapping up and closing. I want you to understand the key to getting the reality of God's power in our lives and in our churches is alluded to in verse 11. In the reference to 120 priests sounding trumpets. After the ascension of Christ, we know Peter stood up in the midst of how many disciples? 120. How about that number? And when they were all in one accord, unity. And the day of Pentecost was fully come. That is, the time had come for them to receive the promise of the Holy Spirit from God. A new dispensation where men will be baptized into Christ's body, the church, was born on this day. And just like the dedication of the temple in Jerusalem, on this day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, it would have been filled with Jews observing Pentecost. But I bring this up to observe a clear pattern. Just like the 120 here that we see in 2 Chronicles chapter 5, the 120 disciples were unified, and what came out of that unity was a filling. God did something. I'm telling you, God will always do something incredible with our unity. But I'm telling you this, our division and our fighting and our warring, it quenches the power of God in our lives and in our ministries. In Solomon's house, the temple was filled with the glory of the Lord. In the disciples, there was a filling of the Holy Ghost. And there was a supernatural effect. They began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, as we continue reading on, it is very clear biblically that these were languages, not emotional rubbish. But as believers in Jesus Christ, we are baptized by the Spirit of God into the body of Christ at salvation. But as we land the plane on this week, at least the night sessions, and we put a bow on this, I think for us to get the most out of this to the glory of God. I mean, you haven't sat through four nights to just say, okay, that was nice, what's next? 
No, I think you sat through four nights because you want to be a true worshiper and you want to experience the power of true worship. But here's the key. You ready? To be a dedicated house of worship that glorifies God and experiences his power, we must be filled with the Spirit. That's it. We must be filled with the Spirit. You know what? Galatians 5 is it. If we walk in the Spirit, what is it that we're not going to do? Fulfill the lust of the flesh. Listen, the lust of the flesh is not to be a true worshiper, is it? Actually, it is. It's to be a true worshiper of self. (laughs) Whatever gratifies self, whatever pleases self, is what the flesh is all about. The only way to kill that is you got to walk in the Spirit. And when you walk in the Spirit then you can be a true worshiper. You, show, you give me a church, you give me a body of people who are walking in the Spirit. They are Spirit-filled believers. And 2 Chronicles chapter 5, verses 13 and 14 is going to be a reality in their lives personally, and it's going to show up in their worship and their ministry collectively. And listen, God is going to be greatly glorified. But if we quench the Spirit, if we grieve the Spirit, we get those results, don't we? Father, I thank you so much for this week. I do believe that we have met with you, we have heard from you. Father, would you help us to be good stewards of what you have given us And that, Lord, it would fall out to great glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen.